Hi, this is Louise Campbell, co-host of Surfing the National Army podcast. This weekend, we're offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 49. Our discussion about fibre scan use in the community settings in the UK and the recent NICE meeting on this subject. Plus, from the vault, a section of our coverage of the first NICE meeting on the subject back in March of this year. As this conversation starts, Will Alawazi is wrapping up his comments about the link between liver outcomes and socioeconomic status. Roger Green concurs, discussing market research he used to conduct and reveal physician frustration with their inability to derive better patient behaviour and then noting how rare it is for patients to achieve and maintain lifestyle goals. Will suggests that the challenges are not merely socioeconomic, but does concede that we do not know the causes of better or worse lifestyle management or outcomes. The group concurs that alcohol consumption runs throughout society at all socioeconomic levels. And Roger notes that other health behaviours, noticeably exercise and safety, have a strong socioeconomic link. Will and I suggest that the challenge lies in getting patients into the pathways and taking hepatologist skills into the community more effectively. After Kate asks who will do fibre scans in the community care, the conversation takes a final twist. Ian's suggestion that it may not be possible to achieve an entire basket of liver-based objectives raised in this discussion. The group kicks around different approaches and low for treatment. We've discussed several times on this podcast the need to broaden the use of NITs as the primary diagnostic paradigm and to create and promote guidelines to remove the mystery and confusion from individual physicians finding the best way to do so. In that spirit, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, how about joining the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group? Roger Green. To the degree that liver disease is around social behaviors that you see more of, certainly, well, you see more of all those behaviors at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. I guess that's right. To some degree, the marketing research I used to do at all strata and in most major industrialized countries, including the UK as well as the US, was physicians expressed frustration that the behaviors that you'd have to get wrapped around to deal with metabolic diseases, not just liver, but the whole range, were behaviors that people didn't seem capable of. Most people couldn't undertake. What is it, 10% of people can hold significant? and weight loss for a year, whatever the socioeconomic strata. So therefore, I think there were issues around frustration and a belief that it wasn't quite as random. Now, I think your point is right. One of the reasons is as random socioeconomic. But when we interviewed physicians, at least, that was one of the feedbacks we got. William Elazawi. I don't know. Ian, Louise, Kate, I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily what we see. I mean, people higher up the socioeconomic stratum can consume Herculean amounts of alcohol. And I'm not sure I buy that it's better wine. I think it's actually all the other factors that we don't measure. Um, And I think the same happens with, you know, diet, the gourmet and the gourmand. I'm sure that the same caloric intake can happen at pretty much all socioeconomic strata. But it's the stuff that we just either we can't yet or we haven't got the infrastructure to measure. You know, things like how much space there is at home, how much access there is to healthy food stuffs, how much money there is to buy healthy food. If you're getting your food from a food bank, there's very little fresh food there. The number of fast food outlets between where you live and where you study or work. And I think that's not just a city or a country thing. I mean, there's four of us on the call who are clinicians. So what do you guys think? I mean, I'm not sure I buy that it's just the socioeconomic status because of behaviours. I'm going to jump in before Kate gets in there. I can see her itching. I think you're right. I've got a group of guys who are very much on the higher socioeconomic scale who all drink red wine, but have changed their diet in other ways to bring down their liver fat, for example. You're right. It's about what other access 
access people have to. But for marginalised communities, it was brought up in the recent NICE discussion about whether or not Fibroscan was able to transgender. And in fact, it was the one thing that everybody agreed on, that people who are marginalised have taken to using tests, non-invasive tests in the community. They often don't present to their primary care physicians, but they are actually interested in their liver health if you give them access. And a lot of that is through clinicians like ourselves on the front line doing outreach into these hard to reach and marginalised communities with technology. And technology is rewriting how marginalised communities can access liver care. That for me is a strength of what healthcare can bring in liver care to equity, diversity, marginalisation. Catherine Jack. I was going to jump in and say that I'm sure all of us working clinically have looked after numerous patients who have quite senior professional jobs and unwind because with alcohol because they need a a quick fix in the evenings to feel slightly better after their day and I've worked and I've looked after people with the kind of role where they take clients out for lunch and will drink significant amount of wine at lunchtime finish the afternoon off at work and then go home and carry on drinking again and as you said there are people who will justify that drinking expensive red wine is fine because it's decent quality it's good whereas they're not drinking the the cheap cider that hasn't seen an apple and in their minds they will justify that they're healthier and they're not like those other people because of that but once we start breaking down the number of units per week someone's drinking and just point it out in those simple numbers then you can often see a light bulb moment go off on the heads i totally get that well one of the thoughts i had listening to you is that one place where social determinants of health really are clearly important not just in diet right but also in exercise which is we tell people to live healthy lives walk more and exercise more and one of the things that clearly does correlate with socioeconomic status is the safety of the neighborhood that you live in. So if we say to people get exercise and then we put them in neighborhoods that aren't safe and there are no facilities that they can easily access to go exercise, there, uh, that's entirely socioeconomic and we've put people at a a tremendous deficit. I'm sure that safety and security are important and they do play a role. But I think even before you get there, the mum that's working two jobs, the dad that's going out to do shift work, and then we're lucky to have health-focused academic allied health professionals with an interest in this area who support that with evidence. I think the future is bright. I think we're a long, long way between where we want to be and where we are now. But I think we can see what that roadmap might look like. Well, no, I think it addresses the complexity of liver health. The NICE guidance being discussed or the MedTech being discussed at the moment is giving access to primary care. And that should actually increase this opportunity. If you look at the British Liver Trust's data from a couple of years ago, which I think has improved now, around about 74% of the country do not have access. However, when you look at where the big liver units are, if you look at Leeds, if you look at Newcastle, if you look at Kings, a lot of these are in high demographic areas of poor liver disease and low socioeconomic areas, and we still have. So it's not having the big liver units in those areas with all of the technology. It's getting through the process to get to the specialists. William's right. There is a real disconnect, I suppose, and problem in getting to inequalities and any non-invasive test, whether or not, going back to what Ian was saying, going back to whether it's Fibroscan, whether or not it's ILFT, whether or not it's LFID4, has to be meaningful to get people into that pathway. But we need to take that pathway to people because there's a lot of people do not engage with secondary care, do not want to be in a healthcare process, do not even have GBs. I've seen a lot of that come through the vaccination programme for the recent COVID. People who had never been anywhere near a GP, people who just won't engage, all high risk because of the 
area that I was working with him. But we now need to have NICE and other structures within NHS England. Let's take our skill to those marginalised populations, whether it's NAFLD, whether or not it's any form of livid real health. That's the key because it is a metabolic condition that shows high risks for other conditions. And again, William's right. I love him being prickly because that was the first session I ever watched him do. I started with I'm going to be prickly, basically. (laughs) But that's exactly it. We need to be challenging those barriers. We need to be saying you need to write things that are meaningful for the majority of people who are affected by this condition. And it's poor liver health, not necessarily liver disease at that stage. One um, another thought that's just come to mind listening to the to the discussion is if we do advocate that more fibro scan takes place in primary care, who will actually do the fibro scans? Because we're already hearing a lot from our primary care colleagues that more and more is pushed out to primary care and they don't have the capacity to deal with that. And a very important part of primary care is signposting for really quite serious illnesses that definitely need secondary care consultants to look after them. So who would do the fibro scans? We can certainly say that it's easy for nurses and for healthcare assistants to learn the technique. But again, there's a shortage of nurses. We have 40,000 vacancies in the UK. And when there is a significant clinical, existing clinical workload, it's quite tricky to persuade nurses and healthcare workers to take on a new role and a new clinic for something that's very, very proactive. So I don't know what everyone thinks about who would actually be the clinicians that would do the fibro scans. Catherine Jack. So, that, so, so I think this has been a really interesting discussion because it brings together all of the problems that we face and those come all the way structurally through society to the problems in delivering what we think would be optimal healthcare and for patients in a location that is close to them. And these are not easy things to address. And um, Maybe if I could just be a little bit prickly back. So there are a few things. What we're saying is that we want to test the population or you know population level risk factors, overweight obesity, diabetes, alcohol excess. So that's about a third of the population. And then what we want to do is we want to delve really deeply and deliver bespoke interventions to those people to help them address their risk behaviours. I think that's going to be really, really challenging and probably impossible, actually, in a scalable and cost-effective way. And that, in many ways, that's what primary care is there for. You know, certainly in the UK, is to deliver optimal personalised healthcare to individuals based on the risk factors for all of the diseases that they might encounter and not only liver disease. And it's logical then that, that this stuff is delivered in, in primary care. I heard a message recently from some colleagues in primary care that they're worried that they're spent already, they're worried already spending too much time testing for liver disease and not enough time focusing on the interventions that are going to help. So I think we've got a number of challenges. One is to persuade society that liver disease is important, not only through cancer. We have to show them ways that it can be made better, whether that's with public health interventions, with medicines or with lifestyle advice. I suspect it's going to be the former, not the latter. And then we have to make testing easier so that those interventions can be delivered in a way that's that's meaningful to patients. So clearer messages and simplification. So Ian, does that pull us back towards pathways and guidelines again? Yeah, it definitely does because it's our responsibility to make those pathways and guidelines easier. The BSG guidance that Louise mentioned is 20 pages. It's got three flowcharts in it, each of them applicable to different patient groups with different risk factors. And for primary care, it's too hard. We've made it look too difficult. And, you know, I gave a talk to some other people recently and said, you know, we have to make it look easier. We have to make it actually easier, not only look easier. DMC specialty goes into primary care and says, why don't you do my one test? It's terrible you don't do my one test. You know, that is essentially a whole nother sort of set of professionals needed for the whole practice. What we're doing at the moment is we're trialling 
adding the Fib4 as an automated component in the diabetes annual review. Now, that's not talking about all the risk groups that you've mentioned there, Ian, but it is the people with type 2 diabetes as a first pass. And the lab returns the result. And what we're now testing is whether or not patients and clinicians want us to do the second tier test in primary or secondary care. So maybe having something that is automated. The other element in all of this is making sure that patients want to know about this. So there's an awful lot of work done with the diabetologists about a decade ago, ask you about your HbA1c. So that seems now to be blindingly obvious and all patients will know what their latest HbA1c was. But it wasn't that long ago that you needed to have huge public messaging campaigns to tell people living with type 2 diabetes that it was okay for them to ask about their HbA1c and okay for them to expect their caregiver, whoever that might be, to know what the HbA1c is and to communicate it back to them. So I think absolutely it is probably not feasible to fibroscan everybody at the point of risk. But there are certain things that we should be able to do that can, if you like, bring that the physical intervention down the funnel so that you have fewer people to do it. And now back to Louise Campbell. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week, and I know we do not have a topic yet, so keep your eyes peeled for a preview ads or posts in LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until then, as Roger would say, stay safe, surf on, and we look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.